I was failing badly towards the end of this walk. I was ready to give it up and Percy ran out onto the track and he grabbed me, you know, by my T-shirt and he says, Rafferty, suffer now and I'll make you a champion for the rest of your life. And sure enough, I went on uh, and uh, broke the world record for the non-stop walk. You're listening to Voices of Value, a selection of valuable insights designed to help you get more out of your professional and personal life through simple and easy to adopt life lessons. If you're keen to enjoy a better quality of life at work and at home, sit back and join the conversation with your hosts, Peter Kakos and Rick Rushton. Welcome to another episode of Voices of Value. This is Peter Kakos here with my co-host and great friend, Rick Rushton. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, mate. I'm pretty excited about today's guest. You know I've been really passionate about getting this man to the microphone. I think we're always fairly excited about it here, so Rick, let's be fair. (laughs) We don't want to sort of play any favourites, but this is someone who has been a good friend of mine for the better part of almost two decades, Pete, and... um, you know, I had the great fortune of introducing him to public events that we were running back in the sort of, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Halcyon days. Halcyon days. Even to the intimate coaching groups we had. And he always was revered, not just for the content that he shared with our listeners, but the absolute authenticity of how he delivered it. Very congruent, very natural about who he uh, is and was. And he doesn't know it yet, but he actually also influenced me probably 20 years before that as a young lad growing up in the 1970s, Pete. Because if you ask me then, what did I want to be when I grew up? I would have said I want to be jockey. Prof- no, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even know how to ride a horse, but I had to probably had the right height and weight. Thank you for that. Uh, no, I actually wanted to be a professional soccer player, and um, and if you ask me why I wanted to do that, I just used to think I could do that all day. I could run all day, and you know, I used to remember saying I, I was recorded by my grandmother once saying I could run. I reckon then I could run from Melbourne to Sydney. Well, this guy we're about to introduce our audience to actually was the first person to do that. And um, so he's ticked the professional soccer player box. He's ticked the ultra marathon running box. But more importantly, Pete, he also was on my favourite show growing up, Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, <laughs> with Daryl Summers and Aussie Ostrich and the and Dickie Knee. Dickie Knee. But for those who don't know Tony Rafferty OAM, uh, Tony is someone who pioneered ultra marathon running. In 1972 was the first time he actually created the record of running from Melbourne to Sydney, Pete, a year later. In 1973, he ran from Fremantle, initially to Sydney, found out that someone in America had actually done a similar distance, so he thought, oh, well, I'll keep on going then, and he kept on running up to the Gold Coast. In so doing, created a world record, but he was also the first person to run then through the Nullarbor Plains, which was amazing. In 1979, it's the one that I absolutely remember, he actually did what most thought was impossible to do. He ran through the hottest place on earth, which is a place called Death Valley in the Nevada desert, where the ground temperature was taken close to 70 degrees Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Um, and he was able to do that and survive. And obviously, most importantly, post his running career, which we'll you know, touch on today, he was a, a torchbearer at the 2000 Olympic Games. And uh, more importantly, he received his Order of Australia medal for his services to ultramarathon running. But more importantly, Pete, getting out the important message to the wider community about fitness. And uh, that's something that I think is fundamentally important too. So without further ado, I think we bring him to the microphone. Tony Rafferty, OAM, welcome to Voices of Value. Good. Thank you very much, uh, Rick and Peter. It's really nice uh, to be here and I look forward to the interview. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Tony, that, um, that doesn't sound like a native uh, Berwick, Victoria, Australia accent. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> t- talk to us about that. Yes, well, I was born in uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland in uh, 1939. 
And um, I then later came to Australia when I was 21. And um, the whole endurance uh, uh, marathon, ultra marathon running, uh, started from uh, just what uh, Rick has just mentioned, you know, with the Sydney to Melbourne uh, being the first to run. And then the, the ultra marathons followed uh, uh, after that. But born in Belfast, and uh, some people say I've been running ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but came out to Australia with the promise of a professional sort of soccer um, contract and uh, potential, and you know, talk us through that. You're, you're very passionate about soccer. You were coaching just up until the most recent times at a very high level. Yes, well, I, I did come out here. I was 15 years of age when I represented um, uh, Ireland as um, a soccer international. I played for County Down, which was the county, and that was also the trial seat on the international yep. uh, team. So um, th- that was terrific. We we didn't win the match. It was the British Championships. We were beaten 7-0 uh, by England. We drew with Wales um, 2-2, and uh, we... Um, were beaten by Scotland uh, 2-0. And the interesting thing about that whole period was I have got photograph at home of myself with an international cap. And people think, oh, everybody's presented with the caps the way they do nowadays and the way they did then, except uh, in Northern Ireland because there was no budget and uh, there was the one cap and each player was photographed with this <laughs> one cap. And fortunately, my mum and dad kept this little photograph, which I now have of me with, uh, w- w- with the cap. But yeah, look, um, I became quite well known, obviously, in my street of 74 houses in what one in Australian terms could be call- called the back streets of Belfast. And uh, we didn't realize it was like that then. And I was um, a young Catholic boy uh, brought up in a, a very Protestant district. But all my best friends were Protestants. So we got on really uh, well together. And then as time went on, things got a, a bit strange. And a lot of it was hidden from my brother and sister and myself. And then eventually, uh, when all the um, promotion came for migrants to come to Australia, I, I came out to Australia. And uh, it's a long story, but, but uh, I, I, I uh, worked at uh, the Port Campbell, Port Campbell Steelworks, the Australian Iron and Steel, and then went to Newcastle and worked in Commonwealth Rolling Mills. And uh, then uh, after that, went into fitness center, a fitness center in Maitland. And from that period onwards, I was connected with the fitness industry. Yep. And I'd studied physical fitness, you know, to a reasonable uh, level. And I did play soccer then. I played for Maitland and uh, I was with South Coast United on the books for a short period. And uh, I played here and there. But then there was a credit squeeze uh, uh, came on. Menzies put on the credit squeeze and I hitchhiked around Australia for a while. And I finished up back in Wollongong. And um, then the the whole fitness aspect seemed to grow from there. So, um, and why why was that? What what sort of prompted that with the fitness side of things? Well, what was the catalyst? I, I well, the catalyst for the fitness things was working in fitness centres. I would look after groups of people. I'd take them for running when running was not a craze. This mm. I'm talking about many years before James Fix came on the running scene and the whole world heard of James Fix and then the, the running scene hit. Running scene didn't hit until uh, many years um, uh, after I had started. And in fact, I can boast of, a fa- of the fact that 
I did um, advertise once for a fun run. That's what I called it, a fun <laughs> run. Yeah. And thinking that, oh, I'll get people, uh, you know, interested in physical fitness because I was in the fitness industry uh, in those days. But people didn't run. If you were seen with a, with a tracksuit on in these early days, the very early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, if you were seen with a tracksuit on, you were a, a, an athlete. Mm. You, you weren't, it wasn't casual gear. Mm. There weren't the Adidas and the Pumas and the Nikes were just starting off uh, yep. uh, later on. So I just... Um, I promoted uh, um, this idea of, of running a fun run. And I lived in Elwood at the time. So it was to run from city to Elwood. And I expected, oh, many thousands of people would turn up and we'd go at the beach uh, uh, at Elwood and have the masses running. Well, 13 people turned up. <laughs> and so, oh, well, we ran and we finished off, off my little small flat uh, in El Elwood and we had coffee and, and so on. But the interesting thing about that whole thing is that that evening, Gough Whitlam had something happening, and I beat Gough Whitlam to the news because oh, really? the, all the TV had turned up to photograph this big fun run, and it finished up with thirteen people <laughs> running down it. So that was the that was the the catalyst, I suppose, to get people interested in um, in, in in running, uh, not necessarily marathon running. And I had no ideas how to be interested in the ultras at that stage. Yeah, but it kind of started from there when I finished up at the Golden Ball Health Club in uh, Campbell. In Campbell. Which used to do a lot of live crosses too, and we'll get to that in a moment yeah. in relation to the Hey Hey It's Saturday stuff. Talk us through your time with Percy, the great coach, Herb Elliott's coach, Percy Serity, who yeah. you know, had a massive impact on you and, and really got you to absolutely hone your focus on your, your fitness and, and rather than be casual about it, to be really committed to it. Well, look, uh, Percy was a controversial figure, as most people know to this day, and things he said in those days just would not get <laughs> any... fly today. Any, it, yeah, you, it Politically correctness it. wasn't and, part of his sort of setup, was it? <laughs> no, and of course, no, that's right. And uh, some people may say it's gone too far the other way now, but anyway, that's another story. Percy Surity, um, uh, I arrived as a promotion for the Golden Bowl Fitness Centre at the time. There was a promotion. Uh, we were trying to work out how can we get the Golden Bowl into the headlines because there was a wee bit of a competition going with Brendan Edwards, uh, well, soon after that. So I came up with this idea. I said, look, Hawthorne Football Club are coming down here, you know, with um, uh, Peter Crimmins and Ian Bremner. And, you know, I, I, I met the, the great uh, John Kennedy f for a short period. And uh, Kevin Bartlett was with uh, Richmond yep. uh, from memory at that time. Tom Hafey would bring the people to the Golden Bowl Fitness Centre. And I would take these people running. And I was really fit at the time. And uh, Ian uh, Greener would bring the national soccer team, not known then as the Socceroos, down to the fitness centre because we were the only fitness centre at the time well Frank Finley's was another one there was one in Melbourne Frank Sedgman's I think and that was it so all these people used to come to us and a lot of personalities screen TV used to come along and I would was in charge of the floor then I'd be taking everybody for so I was really very very fit yeah and I would get tested and sure enough I come off fit so I take all these uh, people so I I I thought oh I'll um 
what say I do a non-stop walk and try and break, break a Mexican's world record of a non-stop walk, uh, Guinness Book of Records thing at Olympic Park. So we booked Olympic Park and off I went on this, which lasted nearly three days of non-stop, 10-minute break every six hours, I think it was from then, according to the Guinness Book of Records. And Percy Surity, whom I'd met at the Golden Ball, we invited him down once and he spoke for us. And uh, I invited him down to the walk and he came along. And I was failing badly towards the end of this walk. I was ready to give it up and Percy ran out onto the track and he grabbed me, you know, by my T-shirt and he says, Rafferty, suffer now and I'll make you a champion for the rest of your life. <laughs> and he really shook me up. And that really yelled into that into my ear and this was about four or five o'clock in the morning. And sure enough, I went on uh, and uh, broke the world record for the non-stop walk. How long was and it, Tony? Then, Do you remember? Uh, it was um, uh, 351 kilometres, and wow. I'd, I'd, I had beaten it by 19 kilometres, uh, which just comes to memory at this stage. And uh, nobody had ever done that. Not, I'm not sure this day of that would still stand or not. I'm not sure. I don't know, but I'd be tired and driving 391 <laughs> kilometres, I reckon. You find yeah, yeah 351 kilometres. The thing after that, actually, was to, to do a non-stop uh, run, uh, which, once again, was done. We raised a lot of money for uh, the Royal Children's Hospital, Hospital yeah. for, uh, coming from... Um, uh, Melbourne to Portsea and uh, return, back, yep. and um, that that actually turned out to be uh, quite dangerous along the way. We started off in uh, in Melbourne from the post office, and um, it was uh, um, yeah. And we went along the beach road right to Portsea, and yep. Percy came out at Portsea, very cranky, jumped up and down because. I was 20 minutes late and so on. <laughs> Percy was a real character. He got a little, although we loved one another, he was a great character. And then I came back and did this uh, non-stop run. And at that stage, it seemed that uh, the great, and I don't use that term lightly, was the great George Purden, yep. seemed uh, to get very jealous about all of this. Yes. And little things happened along the way which... It was a bit disappointing because I was getting front page stuff. Yes. Nobody had heard of George Purden at that stage. No, he was but the, he was the first to do a lot of things in your field, wasn't he? So oh, he felt the best, absolutely uh, yeah. like you were this Johnny Come Lately, getting all the media attention. He'd been doing it for a long time. Exactly. And uh, he had never done any in the ultra no. sense. Oh, he, he did do a couple, one or two 24-hour things. And he did. He was the best at, at anything on track. But yep. Sydney, Melbourne, all that was... You know, uh, th this was in my mind rather than his. Yes. And la later, George and I became very good friends. I must say that in case I forget. But anyway, uh, all of that happened, and that was the kind of the start of a few nasty things which in the future would come up uh, with other um, ultra uh, events. But I, I did this... Um, run, uh, you know, right down. Crowds came out uh, along the beach road. Like, I mean crowds. It was Australia Day and uh, back then and um, the kids are signing autographs and I, d I couldn't believe, but because the media, Channel 7 in particular, yeah. and the Royal Children's Hospital had promoted this well, I, I got to Port Sea feeling very tired on the way back, 
television was in view the whole way. And um, I finished up uh, doing a great run, finishing at Elwood and being on every TV network and all that went around the world. Which was know? my introduction to Tony Rafferty, Pete, because I remember that clearly, mm-hmm. Isabel, because it, it had all that euphoria of the Royal Children's Hospital appeal and TV media coverage. It was on the... Uh, so that was just starting then. Yeah, it was yeah, really sure. kind of, you know, Tony, and, and I think the thing I love about you know, Percy Serity saying to Tony, you know, suffer now and I'll make you a champion later. It was yeah. kind of pay the price because the price is worth paying. And that was sort of something that held you in very good stead throughout the rest of your career, clearly. And I mean, he was, uh, Percy Serity was the coach of the great Herb Elliott and, you oh, know, yes. obviously, uh, you know, very good at what he does. I've already seen, Tony, or hearing a common thread of, of, of you wanting to help people and the charitable nature of yourself. Was that something that was, an, was innate with you or is it something that you – you learned along the way or is it just something always within you that you you wanted to help others because that's what I'm hearing immediately from from what you're saying. Yes, well, look, that's interesting. In the fitness industry in those days, it wasn't very well paid uh, work, but uh, I could see the benefits that people were getting out of making themselves a bit healthier and believing in me that uh, the instructions I was giving them, they believed that things would happen. And a lot of, I get hundreds of letters over the years from people writing back, why well, I remember this day and I did this. And mm. But to answer your question, Peter, look, I, I don't really know whether I was in it just just to help people. I was in it to uh, promote uh, myself, I think, as a, uh, a fitness expert. And in the process, I got the value back uh, from people realizing that they were benefiting from my advice. And at those days, I studied nutrition as much as you could in those days. And I didn't have any tertiary education. <clears throat> but uh, I was advising people, uh, you know, on diet. And it's an amazing thing that what I was advising them then is so true even today. And yeah. I'm not saying that I don't eat uh, meat. I don't eat meat often. Uh, I am mostly, I suppose, connected to a vegetarian-type diet, but I do enjoy a glass of red wine at night time. I do enjoy a beer now and again, and I I like a coffee, so I'm not fanatical about all of this. Mm. And uh, I like to make that emphasis because I'm not too much into this political correctness business in reference to veganism and so on these days. Mm. So to get back to what you were saying, yes, I did enjoy... Um, life in, in a big way by finding people were helped by what I was suggesting yeah. to them and at the same time trying to reach out to get someplace because uh, you know life is best living if you've got a challenge yeah. and uh, I love these physical and uh, mental challenges. So talking about challenges let's go to 1973. What the heck possesses you to say in August of 1973, I'm going to run from Fremantle on the West Coast to Sydney on the East Coast, run the continent of Australia realistically, and then get to the end and realise after more than two months, I think it was you know close to two months anyway, that you had to keep on running if you wanted the record to go up to the Gold Coast. What, what possesses you to want to do that? Yeah, well, John Williams, he turned out to be my manager at that st- stage. He was developing his relationship with the public relations industry and he rang me up this day and we had a meeting in the Wellington Hotel in Melbourne, the oldest hotel in central Melbourne. We sat down just and we had a beer and uh, 
he, he said to me, what's your ambition, Tony? What would you like to do? And I says, well, look, uh, because I'm kind of freelancing in the fitness thing now and I'm in and out doing an odd speaking engagement even then, uh, and I said, well, okay, it seems to be my thing. Uh, I said, uh, John, I'd love to be the first to run across Australia, and he nearly <laughs> fell over. He says, and then being in public relations and in promotions, he put it to his people, and that was really the start of it. So we arranged, we got all this PR stuff behind us, and we arranged to get to the Southern Cross to have this big media function. Uh, at the Southern uh, Southern Cross, and sure enough, Channel Seven Nine. Even my my poor old mom at the time, she was interviewed on television, and this was just so big. But John, after it was over, grabbed me and he said, "Tony, there are some rumours because of your past experiences that uh, people were are trying to interrupt this as it went along." And, of course, it seemed to be the George Purden yeah. uh, situation. And he said, what do you have? I said, I don't care. I don't care. I'm, I don't care about that. Uh, let's do it. So Kellogg's were really, really interested in this. So they decided, okay, we don't know, you know what's going to happen. There are going to be floods in Nullarbor Plain, uh, first floods to come for many, many years. The, the, the road's going to be closed, all of that stuff. If Tony gets to... Uh, the, across the Nullarbor, we'll sponsor from there on. Right. So we eventually paid our own expenses to get a gr whole group of us uh, to get to, to Perth. We had a big promotion there on the race course at Perth. Uh, the date was set. I went to Fremantle. I filled a couple of bottles of water with the free Fremantle. There was one person on the Fremantle Pier whom I still has his, has a, you know, his, Autograph. Uh, uh, his note there. Yep. He was just an ordinary person, just to say. And uh, so off uh, the run started, and I ran in to the race course, and then from there to start the run uh, uh, across Australia. So that's where the across Australia run started. <laughs> so to get to the end of the Nullarbor, what what distance was that? For, so for Kellogg's to oh. start, what did you have to do before that? Oh, what would it be? Well, it was five thousand nine hundred thirty-one kilometers the surfer's paradise. So you're talking 2,000, what is it to Melbourne? 2,000. Yeah, about 1,000. Uh, more than that. I'm it just seemed to roll off your tongue then. When you <laughs> yeah, I'm going, just 1,000. Yeah, yeah, well. Just a lazy 1,000. Um, what, what was that distance again to the Gold Coast? That was? Uh, 5,931 uh, 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 kilometres, and I did it in 74 days. I advertised, wow. uh, uh, averaged 84 kilometres a day, and some days I'd be running well over 100 but we got out, and this should be mentioned, that um, the, the conditions were horrendous uh, out of Perth. It just poured with rain, and we got uh, right through to Norseman, and then we started the journey across Australia. The roads were closed. Now, there was 400 kilometres, 400 kilometres of unsealed road, uh, between Norseman and Eucla because the West Australian government, the South Australian government couldn't come to build the road. <laughs> right. And there were potholes, some of them knee-deep potholes, yeah. oh. which were filled uh, with water and with mud. So you and wouldn't know. I, I had to, no, well, this all came down and yeah. the roads were closed. But we decided to go through. Some semi-trailers were going through. But with our vehicles and, and so on, we were well supplied outside of Perth with vehicles, caravan, all of that. 
lots of problems, lots of uh, um, breakdowns with people coming out onto the road with me, just with water and some, and, and just walking most, most of the way, then running a bit, walking. And then at times the, uh, the uh, floods were up to my waist, and uh, I was r- right walking at one stage, kilometre after kilometre, up to my waist. Meanwhile, other uh, vehicles were coming from Perth to help us out across the across the, the Nullarbor in terms of I'm running from uh, you know right across the the, <laughs> the nation. There's no way I'm taking any lifts no. uh, or, or or anything like that. And with people from Rotary clubs as part of the crew, just signed to make sure that everything was right. Just to, verify that, that you're actually it, yep. that I was doing it. Many say there wasn't, that I, you know, rumors were coming through. But anyway, that's a long, long story because it uh, went to court while I was actually running (laughs) because of um, uh, libelous remarks and so on. And eventually I got through. At one stage, there were dead snakes wrapped around uh, my arm. Um, There were all sorts of, you know, you could see dead foxes and things floating along. Uh, And then I got through to, um, eventually you got uh, over the Nullarbor plain. And then you still weren't weren't away from the bad weather. Mm. Then the sun would come out and then it got really hot. And so it continued from there. But so you actually ran and swam the (laughs) strength and waited. And it was almost like a survivor meets sort of uh, 1973, wasn't it? Yeah, some people said that... um, I was the first person to swim the Nullarbor. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, it's a it's a phenomenal um, phenomenal mindset that you must have had, and the, the attrition and and so forth. Mindset's a big part about what Rick and I speak of on on this show. Um, could you talk us through? You know, it just must be there must be little voices on your shoulder the whole way through. You know, give up time you know why are you doing this and i could i could only just imagine i don't want to put words in your mouth i can just imagine what you had to sort of go through um from a psychological point of view could you talk us through that and how you overcame that to just keep pushing through yeah there were many 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 down moments uh, i'll tell you when i would get into the caravan try and go to sleep but uh, you know i had uh, you know, sleep deprivation because saying, oh, is this all worth it? And w- w- were the people not right on the other side? You know, perhaps their, their besties would go through them in mind. What I did, I, I uh, one day I got into the car, I had everybody around me. I said, look, I said, we're all getting a bit negative here. And my name's out in front. You people with great respect will be long forgotten and my name will be out there. I've got a big sponsorship hopefully coming up from, from Kellogg's. Uh, I want to go in the inverted commas in those days wasn't known as such the speaking circuit because I, I have a lot to give uh, by. So what I did was I said, this is what, the way we have got to react here, guys. And I took over. And John Williams, uh, to his credit, backed me on this very strongly because John was with me in this sense. He wanted the thing to be a great success. So I said, we're going to take this day by day. I'm going to tomorrow. We've got a pretty flat run by the look of it, a bit rough here and there along the ages, but we're going to go for it. I'm going to cover 70 kilometers tomorrow, and that'll be it over. We'll go to sleep for four hours, five hours. I'll get back out on the, the course again. And I'm going to, it looks like the following, after that 74, it looks like I could manage 100Ks out of the next bit because we were catching up from bad weather 
you know, over the Nullarbor with yep. all the floods. And uh, and I was knocked around a lot and scratched and and so on and a lot of uh, soreness, which my monsieur had to look after and kept me going. And I said, so I got this mindset within the support crew to get behind me to say, Tony, you've said that you're going to run 100K today. Come on, do it. <laughs> so you put yourself on the so line. I put myself on the line <laughs> in this sense. And uh, that's the way it, it worked out right through. Now, I lost a, uh, one or two crew members in the process. We got some more volunteers from university people in Melbourne to come and, and uh, you know, repla- replace them. Yeah. And uh, so we went on uh, right through um, to, to Melbourne. In the meantime... In the meantime, or just before Melbourne, I should maybe stop in Adelaide there and say, in the meantime, uh, Mr. Purden and his support crew had followed us right through, even to the point of getting through to Fremantle to, to copy. See, he, you know, there was no um, uh, creative thought here. No. It was all a reaction rather than being pro-creative mm-hmm. yep. at the time. And I said all this publicly. Uh, so he decided he started a week later magnificent athlete as he was. Mm. But the thing was, along the way, I had mayors of cities to to shake hands with. Yep. I had people along the way. I had to give a 20-minute talk here. I had to go off here because a sponsor would sponsor a 60K section. Yep. I had to go and sign autographs. I had to go here. Whereas Mr. Purden, he was taking the shortest route possible right through uh, to Melbourne. Uninterrupted. All of these things were, were happening uh, along the way. Anyway, running into Adelaide, I got in. I wanted to be the first to cross the Nullarbor. Purden was catching me. Uh, I wanted to be the first to cross. I got into Adelaide. When I was running out of Adelaide, Purden was coming in, right? So he, he was catching me. Great stuff. He went right through. But uh, even cons- even considering, you know, the fact that he was running the straightest line through to Sydney as best he could, he was running in. So there he was as I'm running out. I said, this will make good stuff. So we got it on camera and got on film. So as I'm running out, I waved across the road because that's the type of person I am. Yep. Uh, waved across the road, head down. He just travelled on, <laughs> not a thing, you see. So this is George. George is like that, you know with all respect to him at the time. And I said, oh, well, that's the way he wants to be. So off I went, and we had to go through the Barossa and all like that. He didn't. Stop for a wine, no. (laughs) No wine. I think I may have along the way (laughs) at at times. And uh, so we went through. um, I eventually got – George uh, beat me into Sydney. Yeah. And it was just before that when I I decided to say, right, the heck with this, I'm going to do the longest run in history. I'm going to go through the service paradise. Will Kellogg's get behind me? And Kellogg's went, yes, we're behind you. And went right through, and uh, Clem Jones welcomed me into Brisbane, yep. and then I backtracked uh, back into service paradise. Yep. And uh, an estimated 10,000 people turned out to greet me at Cavill Avenue. Brilliant. And I, did, I went running into the Pacific Ocean with my Bottles of uh, water and poured the water from uh, the Pacific (laughs) Ocean into the, or from the Indian Ocean into the the Pacific Pacific Ocean. Uh. And uh, 5,931 K, 3,686 miles. That's just incredible. Tony, what I'm I'm hearing there along the way, and I want to recap on some of this stuff as well, is is A, you were very, very clear on your goal. 
very, very clear on your goal and made some um, some alterations to that as well when you extended the goal and so forth. But you were so certain that this is what it's going to be. But along with that, as as a lot of us are very clear on our goals, it's 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 sometimes we lack that assertiveness mm. as to uh, this is what needs to happen. And when you got your team and got your crew, got them to get behind you, that then led to that other point called accountability. So then you actually had some accountability exactly. from them. So you had the assertiveness to get them to back you and tell them this is what we're doing. So it's that common goal. Yep. yep. Makes it a lot easier. And then you've got that accountability with them. Brilliant. And the other thing I think I heard there, Pete, was I'm going to do this. So I'm going to control that part. You take care of your part, which is to support me in what I need. And let's just get there together in that particular respect. But I, I actually know the, the, the story well, because I've had the benefit of hearing it more than once through, you know, Tony's uh, own words. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because that weather challenge that Tony faced was monstrous. George Purden had the best weather run. He had the straightest line run. There was so many differences between the two sort of achievements and so to then go the hell with it I'll keep on going up to Brisbane double back to the Gold Coast make sure I've run further than anybody else I'm wondering if that was the inspiration behind Forrest Gump <laughs> <laughs> was it Tony? oh look I've no idea I did, I did see the Forrest Gump film that original film I, I, I can't even remember what year that was made but anyway I've no idea well I would have thought you owed some royalties just quietly I think it's <laughs> yes. uh, fair to say that he could have modelled himself on you I'll just uh, say this it did uh, was the start of people throughout the world uh, thinking about ultramarathon running then so mm. I I had then, uh, and this has come up in print all over the place, but I was a pioneer of uh, the, the ultra. Oh, uh, and that, that was way back in 1973. Yeah. So when did Cliffy, was that 83 80s, when Cliff yeah, Young did? Yeah. Because I was at Westfield Shopping Town that day yeah. waiting for um, for Cliffy to shuffle in. But yeah. there's, a numerical, um, there's some numerical challenges ahead of that. So we want to say that for part two of this interview, Pete, because I think that really sort of finishes up sort of Tony's career at the back end because that opportunity then that you got with the sponsorship behind Kellogg's and obviously your favourite runners were Dunlop KT26s from memory. Um, (laughs) No no sponsorship from them though, I didn't think, from memory, was that right? No, no, that, uh, yeah, that, look, that was mentioned, it wasn't true. No. Uh, The, 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 I've got to give Ron Clark great credit here from (coughs) Adidas, it was the SL72s which are now in the, um, Academy of Sport yep. in uh, the museum in there the in the museum MCG. Of yep. sport, yeah. I've seen them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're the, there. And he gave me uh, then seven pair of those. And one of the reasons that uh, uh, SL72, from what I hear, uh, was discontinued was they were so good a shoe. You couldn't break them. That you couldn't break them. <laughs> Because that, that's not good for sales uh, yeah, la- la- later on. That's what I heard later. But so Ron Clark was very good. And then uh, Ted Whitten in later times Added became associated yep. uh, with Adidas. And I yep. should mention also that along the way, Ken Mitchell with Puma uh, did do some sponsorship in all the things with me. Absolutely. So it was seven pairs of the runners from Fremantle to the Gold Coast? Uh, uh, yes, I did. Where I kept two for, for running into Gold Coast. But I didn't wear them out. You no. couldn't do that because it would ruin, ruin your, you know, your your tread, and you know your uh, gait gets a bit closer as yep. you get tired and so on. And then I had all this, uh, you know, terrain to go through on the way up to Brisbane. 
God, you know. Undulating, yeah. Undulating and um, uh, and so on. So, so seven pairs of shoes, three flippers, no snorkels. Um, yeah, you did well. Still trying to just imagine trying to run with a dead snake wrapped around your arm. And just in wrapping up this part one, um, Tony, I think when Pete talks about mindset and just preparing, and I've heard the story because I've heard you share it with audiences so beautifully. I just want to talk you through this, Pete, because I don't know if you've had this great fortune hearing the story, but there's a challenge here for Tony to go and run on the hottest place on earth, recorded ground temperatures close to 70 degrees Celsius, Death Valley in the middle of the Nevada desert, isn't it? It's sort of in between Las Vegas and LA for those who sort of have ever been to the US. Um, there was a really amazing story about what the expectation was there to the point where no one thought A, he could do it, B, it was bound to be a, a, you know, a, a real challenge at the end of it from his mortality standpoint. Talk us through A, preparing for the run through Death Valley, maybe the the little discussion you had with the journalist from the New York Times, I think it was. <laughs> um, yes. But just share, share that with our listeners because I think this really gets back to Pete's point about mindset, execution of a plan and being singular in your focus. Uh, yes, well, the preparation for death, I was working at the Golden Balls Fitness Centre for a while and then I broke to get on to the bit of speaking at the time from, from memory. But I was training in a sauna bath in Frank Findlay Gym for a while, um, in a sauna bath with, with a skipping rope, because this was July uh, in Melbourne. And, of course, uh, July in the United States, Summer. Death, Death Valley is midsummer. Yep. But I wanted to go through Death Valley in the hottest place on earth because Bill Everton had run through in the best part, even though it's very hot, which was the cooler months of, I think it was January or something beforehand, yep. but nobody had ever run through it uh, in that kind of single run um, in midsummer. So... I got into the sauna bath. I was doing push-ups in the sauna bath, and I'll never forget the late uh, Drew Morford coming along into the sauna bath with me and doing an interview as I was doing this because <laughs> I was trying to simulate the circumstances of, um, uh, you know, de- of, de- of Death Valley. In the process, I would go into the city. I'd run into the city often, and I would wrap um, little sandbags round uh, the bottom of my shoes. I had this little unique thing just to add a bit of weight to my uh, my legs. And I'd run up, you couldn't do this now because of security reasons, but I'd run up the back stairs of uh, one or two of the skyscrapers in Melbourne at the time. From memory, was it the Manchester Unity building? I think that I may be wrong there, but anyway, that's one that comes to mind. And I'd run up and back and then I'd attempt, uh, if I wasn't too tired then, to run back to where I was living at the time. Unbelievable. Outside, outside of Melbourne. So th- that was uh, give you an idea of what I did in preparation, but getting into the sauna and trying to get those circumstances before flying across uh, to Death Valley. And you also visualised the heat in your face, the wind in your face, the sand in your face. You really got into deep visualisation, didn't you, to prepare yourself? I did. uh, Yeah, thanks, Rick. Uh, I I remember that vividly, going and sitting in a meditation uh, state every night and uh, making sure I wouldn't get too relaxed, otherwise, you know, maybe you could fall asleep. And uh, I remember later the Beatles being into this uh, meditation idea. Uh, Anyway, uh, I think that was later on. But uh, I would just try to think of 
uh, of um, what I was going to put up with, you know, and and try to feel the heat, and and uh, and the wind, and uh, you know, I'd read up a lot on Death Valley and and try to look at Death Valley and uh, that. Um, uh, when you look at it, it looks like a big white lake, but in fact it's salt flats. And then you've got the 100 metres climb up over the Panamint Mountains, which I'll probably be able to mention later. Uh, you know, so I visualised as best I could uh, the, the, the situation of Death Valley. And I continue that practice with other things I used to do too. Yep. It's good to cut yourself off from things and just get away from things for, for, for 10 minutes. That meditation process, was that something that was fairly common that sort of time? I know you said that the Beatles no. sort of got onto it, but other sports, was that was that big no. in the sports field? No. no, not. How did you come across not, that? Uh, not much. It, was it the Maharishi Yogi? who, yep, who came, I think it Trans was. Transmedial, they yeah. talked about mm. it. Yep. And not that I was... You know, really keen and deep into deep into this, but I did believe it. And then when you go back to, uh, across, uh, you know, back in time, like uh, Plato and Socrates and Christ and Einstein, all of those uh, um, great names, yep. they all meditated. Mm. And I said, well, heavens, if they're meditating, I mean, there's must be something about it that's right. And I'm not a deeply religious person. Uh, but uh, meditation, uh, as opposed to certain points, something to do with the Catholic religion too, and I'm Catholic. So that had something to do with it. But now, of course, meditation is yeah. the big mm. thing. So I was into something, but I'd, I don't think, uh, to be fair, I don't think I actually promoted the fact in a big way that it was necessary for everybody to do it. No. But I think it is now, yeah. But you started fun runs, you started meditation, visualisation for sports people. <laughs> my, uh, my wife um, challenges that, that it's that it's a fun run. She goes, I don't understand. How is it fun? <laughs> Running's not fun. With a dead snake around you. Uh, and just getting back to the visualisation, how close was it in reality running through Death Valley? with the visualisation you did beforehand, was it almost like as you were doing it, you are thinking, yeah, I've been here before, even though it was the first time running through it? I, I can't say it was exactly like that, no. no. But I do honestly think that the preparation, that kind of preparation gets the mindset Absolutely. ready. I can't say it because things uh, through Death, uh, Death Valley um, were just something like unbelievable Shoshone to Death Valley. I can go into that if you like. Yeah. Well, uh, more importantly, like you get to America, you're doing a bit of promo about it and, you know, talk us through the fact that as you're sort of starting to run, uh, you end up getting a bit of a, a visit from, was it the New York Times journalist? I know it was from a fairly big paper. Just, just before we get into the New York Times, did it not worry you that it's called Death Valley? <laughs> <laughs> just want to put it out just there. Just a bit of a did hint. This, this, it's like, oh, did something's not name? quite right with this valley. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, look, uh, Death Valley is um, – uh, it's 82 metres below sea level at a place called Badwater. It's the uh, lowest point on the Western Hemisphere, Death Valley. But I started from the Indian village uh, called Shoshone. Yep. And uh, the uh, man there in, in charge, uh, forget his official uh, name, uh, fired the gun and off I went from Shoshone. Just this Indian village, I'm sure it's bigger now. And off I went, went up uh, and then over up the top of the Panaman Mountains and then uh, down into uh, 82 metres below sea level. And nothing survives in bad water. Lowest point and you're way below 
sea level. It does rain in Death Valley, but it mostly dries up before it hits the ground. And it does flood in Death Valley because the rain hits the top of the Panaman Mountains and comes right down. But now, there's one well-known ultra-distance runner in this country said, oh, Death Valley, you know, uh, you know, there's, it's all flat. <laughs> I didn't run through any flats. I ran up 1,000 <laughs> kilometers and then, uh, uh, right, and then right down. The interesting thing from Badwater is that you can look ahead uh, to Telescope Peak, which is way on top of one of the mountains just out of Death Valley. And as I was running through uh, in temperatures of later recorded over 50 degrees Celsius, you could see snow on the mountain peaks mm-hmm. uh, ahead of me, way, way ahead. So then I went right through, and um, I was feeling pretty bad one day. A helicopter arrived right on the salt, salt flats, and out comes this journalist, the helicopter, and he was a very obese, like really obese man. And I'm saying, this man, this is dangerous, because I was shuffling around, you know, not, uh, and he was taking, this photographer was taking photographs. And he came up to me, rushed up to me very quickly, and he said, oh, Tony, I'm going to run with you, you know, for the next 15, 20 minutes, like he lasted two minutes. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, he run says, or rolled. <laughs> he says, well, when are you going to collapse? When are you going to collapse? That was all he was interested in. And I'll not tell what I said to him no. uh, at the time because that really upset me but I'm not here to collapse I didn't train in, uh, at home in Melbourne and I saw in a bath you know and, uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to be here so I uh, kept running and um, he uh, got back into the helicopter no doubt um, uh, you know um, a helicopter which is nice and cool and his photographer meanwhile decided to take some photographs and he said to me, he says, Tony, listen, do you want to make world headlines? I said, if you drop down on all fours, I'll take this photograph and I'll have it published next week in this uh, journal, which is a really wacky journal, but it's got 12 million, uh, sorry, more than 20 million uh, copies out of Los Angeles. You'll be front page if you can just do this, you know, for the photograph. <laughs> Well, I ran on, and once again, I'll not repeat uh, what no, I. No, you gave I him a bit of a send off. Let's be and honest. I gave him a real send off, yep. and uh, so I so I continued, and and he. Uh, he and he went on he, in his air conditioned helicopter. Probably lost a little bit of weight, maybe coming out rolling alongside of you. So that's <laughs> something you probably affected his life for the better as well, which is important. Yes. When we, because um, we're obviously about to finish this part one, uh, and as a bit of a hook to get people back next week to listen to part two, it was during that trip you got to meet the great. Muhammad Ali. It's at that time that you got to sort of exchange some uh, really great opportunities to develop this fitness industry further in your own mind. Uh, you did pioneer the Westfield as it became Sydney to Melbourne Ultra Marathon, where you did that five times from memory. You can talk to us about your understanding of uh, you know, Cliff Young and more importantly, Yanis Kouras, who I know you've got a very strong affiliation with and uh, and have as well, Pete. Well, you've got me sitting on the edge of my seat, Tony, and I know that our listeners are as well, but um, you're sharing some amazing stories and an ama- amazing mindset from a really inspirational person. So, uh, I'm looking forward to next week. Can't yeah. tell you how much. And just by the introduction you got there, Tony did give it away. So I don't think we're giving too much away to say that he just celebrated a very big milestone birthday. Oh, it's got an eight in it. I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> but you wouldn't know it to be sitting next to him. He's incredibly fit. He's uh, very energized. He's uh, virtually standing up as he's giving this sort of... Uh, 
feedback and value-added content. This is a man who absolutely is congruent with what he's sharing with us, the ability to set the goal, know the goal, be accountable to it, and get it step-by-step. He didn't get there in one foul swoop. He sort of broke it down into incremental 74Ks this day, 100 the next day. He's going to continue on with these incremental steps to greatness as we catch up with him next week. Tony, on behalf of all of our audience of Voices of Value, thank you for being here for part one, and we we hope you'll stay with us to do part two. Otherwise, we've just pumped up something that we can't live up to next week, please. (laughs) Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much, uh, Rex. Thank you, Peter. We trust you enjoyed listening to Voices of Value, a shared conversation between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos. Their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be. If you're keen to enhance the quality of your life even further in the future, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast source. Our website is voicesofvaluepodcast.com and we welcome both your feedback and ratings on the content we provide. Join the conversation again next week when Peter and Rick continue the search for truth, justice, and the value-added way. Listener.